0: Just uh, just a couple of weeks ago, a handful of weeks ago, you had a chance to hear Alan, one of our missionaries from China, share with you the questions that are asked of those who are about to be baptized in China as followers of Christ. These are those questions. Have you put your trust in Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins and on the third day rose again? Have you destroyed your idols and renounced idol worship? Are you willing to share the gospel with others? By God's grace, will you keep following Jesus even when they curse you, hit you, arrest and imprison you, and threaten to kill you? You know in some ways, it's almost easier to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in countries like Malaysia and China than it is here in America. What? What does it mean to follow Christ? in America? What does it mean to follow Christ here? Um, What does it mean for you and for me to follow after Christ? Sometimes it just sounds like this. Somebody says, are you a follower of Christ? You say, yes, I'm a member at North Wake. I go to church. I go to church. That's what it means to follow Christ in America, unless you're in seminary. And then that means that you go to church two, three times a week, plus chapel every day. That's what it means to follow Christ. What does it mean to follow Christ in America irrevocably and at great cost? These are the questions that our passage in the last part of Matthew 8 are going to address for us today. If you want to open your Bibles there to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18... I'd like to pray for our time in the Scriptures together. Father, have mercy on us today. Teach us, grant us faith that we might follow after your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today there are three encounters with Jesus that we're going to look at in this section of Scripture. They start... um, in verse 18, go through the end of the chapter, all three of them unfold around the lake. One set happens as they're ready to get into the boat. Another one happens halfway across the lake while they're in the boat. And the other encounter happens as they just get across the lake and get out of the boat. So those are the three that we're going to look at today, starting, as I mentioned, in verse 18. It reads like this. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, He gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the first volunteer to get in the boat with Jesus is a scribe. He's a Bible teacher. Think of him as a seminary professor, okay? He wants to get in the boat with Jesus and go to the other side where Jesus is going. He wants to, in his own words, to follow Jesus wherever he goes. He's incredibly eager, but Jesus puts him off, almost won't let him in the boat. What's that about? Um, I was helped by Dale Bruner's insights. He said, when listened to carefully, this man's remark has the overtones of, Jesus, this is your lucky day. I have decided to be your disciple. He says this man is an intellectual, as Matthew indicates by his title for the man. He's a scribe, a Bible teacher. And by the Bible, Bible teacher's address to Jesus, he calls him teacher. Significantly, the educator does not approach Jesus as Lord. To this man, Jesus is primarily an attractive teacher. And since the candidate's skill is teaching, too, and since apparently he had not encountered another teacher as impressive as Jesus, he now announces to Jesus, he announces, he doesn't request, that he is Jesus' man completely. Until now, we have not noticed any scribe or educated Bible teacher in Jesus' entourage. Perhaps the candidate has noticed this, too. This may have given even more elan to his announcement. Jesus, at last you have a man with a mind. Bruner sadly notes this then. He says, in Matthew, only non-disciples address Jesus as teacher. Isn't that interesting? So in response to this man's offer to follow, Jesus raises an issue, the central issue for this man and whether he'll follow or not, it's the issue of sacrifice. In essence, Jesus is saying, it's not going to be easy to follow me, it's not going to be popular, it's not going to be enriching. We will not even have a place to stay at times if you take Jesus' words literally. In a nutshell, Jesus says he's going to be itinerant and he's going to be poor, And Jesus is describing his own life. This is not just something his followers do. It's his own life. And if you follow him, Jesus says that's what life's going to be like. So he stops our seminary professor in his tracks right at the edge of the boat and almost won't let him in, asking him, Will you follow me if it costs you? If it costs you your comfort and your security, Are you willing to follow me if it requires a sacrifice? Because Jesus says it certainly will. It most definitely will. Matt Woodley expands on Jesus' response this way. He says, it's as though Jesus is saying, do you really want to follow me wherever? We're on the road most of the time. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I don't know where I'll sleep tomorrow night. We don't share the conveniences of middle-class existence. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. We're going to marginal places of pain and abandonment. We'll touch lepers and howling demoniacs. Then we'll march into Jerusalem where I'll get murdered and all my disciples will scatter. It's a life marked by insecurity and vulnerability. That's what you're signing up for when you follow me. Is that the kind of teacher you want to follow? So what does it mean to follow Jesus in America it means you will follow him in a life marked by sacrifice okay? especially material sacrifice I mean get your, get your mental calculators out and just think with me for a minute basic, basic math here Okay, you're going to follow Christ so you decide as a follower of Christ you're going to tithe of your income. And you're going to do that if you're young, if you're in your 20s, you decide to follow Christ, you're going to do that for 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years. Okay? Do the math. That's tens of thousands of dollars. Some of you make a decent income all your life, that could be $100,000 or more. It's going to cost you to follow Christ. So I'm Imagine with me then that you, you go to a church, and they have a thing called study-serve. And you sign up. And the pastor tricks you into signing up, and you sign up. And so you start serving that third grade class. And, and you can't just show up because they know the Bible better than you, do. so every week you've got to study to figure out what you're going to teach these kids. And so you do your homework. It takes you like five hours a week. And you, you find out that you're good at it. And so you keep signing up and you do it for 10 years, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years if you're young. Do the math. That's thousands of hours of your time, maybe 10,000 hours of your time. And, and I think we would all agree that these are pretty rudimentary sacrifices, right? I mean, this is, this is like entry-level uh, Christianity. Okay. You're generous, generous. And you serve every week the church that you're, you're a part of. <clears throat> it only goes up from there. And I think, I think for me, that's part of the beauty of study serve, <clears throat> where you serve our church in all these ways that you're going to have a chance to sign up a- after the service. End. Not that it's some great sacrifice, but it puts you in the posture of a servant every week. Every week you come here, I'm a servant. I'm a humble servant. I'm a humble servant willing to make a sacrifice for the good of others. That's who I am. That's what it means to be part of the church family here. And it just that's just the baseline on which you build. That's who I am. That's how I relate to my church. And I think that's part of the beauty of it. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to sacrifice, especially the material pleasures of this world of time and treasure. So if you were there on the edge of the lake and you walked up to the boat and Jesus looked you in the eye and he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, that's what it means to follow me. Would you still follow? Would you still get in the boat? See, if you follow Jesus, you will have to sacrifice for the Son of Man himself has nowhere to lay his head. That's who we follow. Now, there's a second volunteer in our story. He shows up in verse 21. Another of the disciples says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, before we think about that together. Disciple is not a tidy term. It doesn't always mean hardcore follower. They're all over the map, the disciples are. And we don't know whether these guys follow or not. We just see how Jesus engages them. And honestly, Jesus' response appears to be about the most insensitive thing He could possibly have said. Did He really mean that? Let the dead bury your own dead? How insensitive is that? And so as a result of that, scholars have been working overtime to figure out what Jesus really meant, okay? Surely he didn't mean let the dead bury their own dead, not Sunday school Jesus. He would never say that. So there's at least eight alternatives or eight options with what Jesus meant here. Um, The first suggestion is a mistranslation, okay? A better translation is let the grave diggers bury their dead. I'm not sure that's That changes things anymore. It's still pretty insensitive. Follow me. Let the gravediggers bury your family. That doesn't sound very helpful. Others say it's an ancient proverb. Let the the dead past bury its dead. And so it means to leave your past behind. Some have suggested that the father actually wasn't dead yet, and he wanted to wait until his father died. Another thing is they have a tradition where you came back a year after the death for a reburial, and he was asking for a year's time, I suppose, I suppose those are options. But what's clear, I think, must be clear to us as we read all of what Jesus says. Jesus is not anti-family. Okay? The New Testament's later going to expound on Jesus' teaching. It's going to say, if, if you do not provide for your relatives, especially for your immediate family, you've denied the faith, you're worse than an infidel. Okay? So Jesus' teaching in the New Testament builds on, it's not anti-family. You know, in the last few years, I've gone back home and buried both my parents. I don't think I dishonored Christ in that. What does he mean? What does Jesus mean? I think Jesus meant what he said. What, What if Jesus looked this man spot on in the eyes, and he says, you follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead? What if he meant that? Perhaps perhaps the key in sorting it out is one single word in this fellow's almost offer to follow Jesus. Okay. And it's that word first. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus is not anti-family. He's anti-family first as our supreme allegiance before him. Um, I think that's what Jesus means when he says um, in Matthew 10, where he says, Whoever loves father more, lo- mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Uh, elsewhere he'll say, Whoever does not hate his father and mother is not worthy of me. I think that's the idea behind what he's saying, that that Jesus is asking our supreme allegiance. Could that be what he means? Could Jesus be asking, requiring allegiance to him even above family, even above our family in their greatest time of need? Who does Jesus think that he is asking for that kind of allegiance? God? Exactly. That's exactly who Jesus thinks he is, and it's exactly why he can, and only he can make this kind of great ask of those who would follow him. So if I told you that to follow Jesus, you would have to suffer the loss of your family, that your dad would write you out of his will if you said yes to following Christ, would you be here next Sunday with your luggage against the wall? See, to follow Jesus is to be willing to sacrifice and to give Him our supreme allegiance. That, I think, is what these two encounters are about. Just as Jesus gets in the boat, that's what they're teaching us. It is going to cost you to follow Jesus. Jesus is going to ask for it all. When He does, will you get in the boat anyway? Anyway. Jesus, King Jesus, has the authority to ask much of his followers. He is asking it this morning of you. Now, what follows next are two stories that build on these encounters by the lake. They encourage us to say yes to Jesus, yes to following him. Let me show you how how I think that works. Uh, Verse 23, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we we are perishing. Now once again, Jesus seems uncaring. The disciples are about to perish, and Jesus is taking a nap. Guys, you know that In your wife's moment of need, the way to communicate love and concern is not to say, honey, I'm going to take a nap. I'll get back with you. doesn't work. doesn't communicate care and concern. So Jesus comes off here, again, quite uncaring. In Mark's account of this story, he tells the same story, um, they actually raise the question. Jesus is in the stern of the boat, sleep on the cushion. They wake him, say to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You know, it's interesting here. The one who had no place to lay his head is forced to catnap in the boat as he commutes to the other side of the lake. And so what Jesus said would happen is happening. Just like Jesus said it would. He says, follow me. It's not going to be easy. You'll be exhausted and then bam, you'll wake up in the storm of your life because you followed me. And these were fishermen who'd been on that very lake all their lives. This must have been a doozy of a storm to terrify them. And Jesus, waking from his sleep, he both rebukes their faith and he honors it. He says in the next couple of verses, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? And then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey Him. Jesus calls them, ye of little faith. It's actually one word in Jesus' language, Um, little faiths, some have translated it. Dale Bruner does, and he says, little faith in the Gospels is faith that wilts in crises, particularly in the face of natural disasters. Little faith disciples believe that the laws of nature are impervious to Jesus' lordship, Jesus is not happy with such faith. He expects a confidence as extensive as his lordship over everything, the natural world included. Jesus calls less extensive faith by name, little faith. Jesus helps little faith, but he evidently does not admire it. But he does not say, come back later when your faith is stronger and I'll help you. He takes us as we come. And if we come with hardly any faith at all, he cannot pretend that he's flattered, but he does go immediately to work. Even little faith is faith still. But the point is not their faith. Okay. The point is Jesus' authority over creation, every inch of it. And as a result, he's to be trusted and followed. <clears throat> the one who has nowhere to lay his head a lesser place than foxes or birds. He's Lord of all their nests and dens and the storms that threaten them. He's Lord of all creation. The one who's asleep in the stern of the boat from pure exhaustion has the power in His spoken word to still howling winds and calm raging seas. See, these miracle stories in Matthew, they're a preview of the kingdom. Want to know what the kingdom's going to be like when Jesus reigns fully? It's going to be like this. There will be no natural disasters. There will be no suffering outcasts, no sick servants, no dying family members, not in his kingdom, not when Jesus reigns. And we are so impotent in the face of all these threats. There's nothing we can do. I mean, just watch the Weather Channel sometime. You ever watch the Weather Channel? It's terrifying. It's like... They just stalk the world looking for disasters. Houses are washed away. Cars blow away. And then there's this guy in Florida. He's in his bedroom, and the earth swallows him, right? Jesus says, trust me. Follow me. The one who calms the storms, the Lord of all creation, I will care for you, and one day there will be no more suffering and sorrow. I guarantee it. I promise it. But now Jesus is letting us know it will be hard. You will get in the boat at Jesus' direction, and you will sail directly into the storm of your life, into suffering and loss, maybe yours, maybe those that you love. He is not exempting us from that. He says, I have nowhere to lay my head, and you might not either, but I can calm the storms. Will you sacrifice and follow me? What sacrifice must you make to better follow Jesus? What would that look like? Is there a fear that keeps you from getting in the boat? See, you really should follow Jesus. He commands all of creation. The story is a great encouragement to us. Follow Him. So, The disciples have gotten in the boat with Jesus, they've sailed directly into a storm with Jesus, and now they reach the other side with Jesus. The moral is, don't try this stuff without Jesus, okay? Um, Let's look at this encounter now that happens on the shore. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one, no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So, are you tracking with the the disciples' day so far, right? They, um, They get in the boat with Jesus, and then they weather the worst storm of their life, and they're thrilled to hit dry land. It's one of those drop to your knees, kiss the ground kind of moments, right? When... As soon as they step out of the boat, we learn from the other gospel accounts of this, they meet these two demon-possessed men, men rather, and we learn that, that at least one of them is running towards them. He's described as mad, cut and bleeding, with broken chains dragging behind him. They are naked, and running right at them, living amongst the tombs, and they are shouting at the top of their voice, what have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? So Jesus leans over and asks, are you sure you want to follow me? Okay. Do you understand why Jesus presses his disciples? Do you know what you're getting into before you get in this boat with me? See, Jesus is going to the other side of the lake, and there would be a storm on the way. He knew that. He knew everything, okay? A life-threatening storm, and they were going to the other side. The other side of the lake, that's, that's pagan territory. They have pigs and demons and people running at you naked out of the tombs there, okay? And Jesus was going there where he was most needed. If you follow him, he's going to go where he's most needed, and you'll follow him there. Are you sure you want to follow him? Now, when I speak here, I try to be clear in my own mind and and clue you in, as best I can, where God stops and Larry starts. Larry's about to start. This is not in the Bible, but I want you to think about it with me. If you're a member of a church, part of a church has at least 35 missionaries' families sent out from our church, right? Most of them in China and India, but some as close as Tampa and D.C. Um, So you're in that church, but you have never so much as set foot out of North Carolina— To come alongside them and encourage them in their work, to visit them, to take them out to dinner, to pray for their city. How well are you following? Okay. Now, I know, I know there's lots of reasons, good reasons, why many of you cannot go. Um, I mean, it may not be that my friend Ken back there in the wheelchair can go. I don't know. And what I know of his faith, he might find a way. You have to take time off work. It costs a fortune. But isn't that the point? Right? Isn't that the point? You'll sacrifice the material stuff to follow Jesus. That's the point. It's gonna cost you a fortune to follow Jesus, okay, and that's why this get rich Christianity is so nonsensical, that's some other Jesus, not this one, so, okay, listen, okay, this is the Lord again, okay, Jesus is going to the other side. He's going where the need is greatest. It will often not be strategic or important to us who are watching. It will make no sense because he crosses this lake at great peril. He risks his entire ministry. They're all in that boat. They encounter the storm that endangers their very life. They get to the other side only to be run off, as we'll see in a moment, by the townspeople. Why? Two crazed men. Jesus is going to the other side for two crazed men. Living naked amongst the tombs. See, um, Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own dead. He has a different mission amongst the tomb, He is restoring men to life. Will you follow Him? Wherever that leads, whatever it costs, if you follow Jesus, this is where He's going. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from these two demon-possessed men. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city. They told everything especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave. All right. First of all, I know you're distracted by it. So what's up with the pigs? Okay. Why, Why did Jesus send the demons into the pigs so that 2,000 pigs go into the water? Um Jesus, first of all, is not an animal hater. Pigs were not high on Jews' lists in terms of uh, livestock to raise, it's true, but Jesus is not an animal hater. (coughs) The pigs are a casualty of spiritual war here in a way that we might learn from their loss the destructive power of the evil one. This is what these demons do, and it's a visible demonstration of their power as Jesus' spoken word drives them out from the men, visibly into the pigs, and they destroy them. It is a tangible demonstration of his great power as well. As with one word, he he sends out as many as could be 6,000 demons. And in Mark's account, the demons give their name. Their name is legion, for we are many. A legion, if they're using military terms, could have been up to 6,000 soldiers. Behold, the authority of Jesus over evil who with but a word sends thousands of demons to their demise and it's a, it's a picture of what Jesus' kingdom is going to be like in Jesus' kingdom there's going to be no evil you read the back end of the Bible in Revelation 20 the devil who had deceived him was thrown into the lake of fire and there he will be tormented day and night forever and ever no evil in Jesus' kingdom and so the story begs us, you should follow Jesus. He has authority over evil. Just like we pray in the Lord's Prayer. He can save anyone from anything. He can deliver from temptation. He really can. So the other question is, what's up with the townspeople, right? Jesus gives them back probably two of their own, Who'd been threatening them? They just shut down the road past the tombs where they lived. They couldn't even get by; it wasn't safe. He gives them back to them, and what do they say? Please leave. Please leave. And you can't help but wonder what is going on with the people in the town. It's been suggested um, that they uh, they may have been more interested in the pigs than they were in the people that in fact their entire livelihood 2,000 pigs had just plunged to their death in the lake they come down to the lake and and there's pig carcasses floating all over that lake and there's the man who did it and they are terrified and saddened and so once again we're faced with the question will you follow and make a sacrifice these people said no no don't want any part of it. Maybe it mattered more to them that a herd of pigs died than that two men's lives were restored. Concern for the bottom line may outweigh concern for those caught in the grips of suffering. A long time ago, there was a fellow named Calvin Stowe. He was a professor of biblical studies, and he lived in the shadow of his more internationally famous wife. Some of you have heard of her. Her name was Harriet Beecher Stowe. And she was the author of The Poignant Denunciation of Slavery, Uncle Tom's Cabin. A lot of you have read it. When she toured England back in the day, he preached before a large crowd gathered to observe in England anti-slavery day. The Brits got rid of slavery before we did. He told the listeners in no uncertain terms that they were hypocrites. Hypocrites. They were proud, he said, that slavery had long since disappeared in England, but 80% of the cotton picked by slaves in the southern states of the U.S. Was, brought, was bought rather by England. They were funding the slave trade. He said slavery would die in America if England would boycott its cotton and went on to ask, are you willing to sacrifice one penny of your profits to do away with slavery? The crowd booed. Will you welcome Jesus, or will you beg him to leave you alone? You should follow him. You really should. He has power over evil, driving out demons with a word, a legion of them. I love the way Martin Luther put it. He said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Mark shows us in a glimpse that Matthew leaves out how these two men responded, and he just recounts one of their response. It says in Mark 5, he says, as Jesus was getting back into the boat on the other side, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He begged Jesus to follow him. Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, where he lived, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. He followed He didn't accompany Jesus, but, oh, how this guy followed Jesus. And you should too, because he's delivered you as well, hasn't he? Maybe not so dramatically as this, but Colossians said he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We have been delivered. Jesus has supreme authority over all creation and over evil. He is calling us to follow him sacrificially and supremely. Supremely. Is he supreme for you? Or is Jesus more of a hobby? You know what I mean. Do you have a hobby? I have hobbies. Um, One of my hobbies is bird watching. I'm not good at it. I'm like... There's a crow. Huh. There's a robin. Okay, then I'm exhausted. That's about as far as I go. But I love birds. I'm fascinated by them. I have a bird feeder outside my window in of my office. Um, I spend, my wife's away, hundreds of dollars every year on bird seed. Okay, it's best if that not be, you know, shared with anybody who lives in my house. Okay. But I do. It's my hobby. One of my hobbies. Um, I even, I even have, I'm not, I'm not making this up, I'll show it to you so that I have a Bible on bird feeding. Okay, here's the picture. It's the Backyard Bird Feeder's Bible. Okay? Um, So I think it'd be fair to ask, if you were asking me, it's it's fair for you to ask, um, is this Bible treated any differently than this Bible? Am I as interested and devoted and knowledgeable about this Bible as I am about this Bible? I think that's a fair question um, that you could ask me. Um, And since I've already told you how bad I am at my hobby, I think you know the answer. Some of you are already starting to duck and cover because you know where this is going. I could ask you this about your hobby too, couldn't I? It's ACC tournament time. Do you know more about your team than you do about your Savior? You know more about the Kohl's Flyer than you do about the book of Matthew? You're more interested in the market reports than you are about what God has called you to live and do that day? What captures your attention first thing in the day? What do you follow? What do you study? What do you give yourselves to? Is Jesus your supreme interest and commitment, or is he just another hobby? See, in these stories, one thing is quite clear. Jesus has authority. He has authority over wind and waves. He has authority over demons. And he has the authority to ask men and women to follow sacrificially and supremely. He's asking that of you today. Will you say yes? You really should. You really should. And to say yes, you need to answer the question, what sacrifice must I make to follow Jesus even more closely? What must I rearrange in my life for him to be supreme? Jesus is asking you to follow. Today as you come to the Lord's table, I hope you'll bring your yes to Jesus with you and offer it to him as worship. Jeff's going to lead us to the table.
1: As a call to worship at the Lord's table. We read these words from Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from east and from west, from north and from south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to the city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by the straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man.